Chapter 16, Part 2 of The Shades of the Wilderness. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Packard of Western Colorado. The Shades of the Wilderness by Joseph A. Altscheller. Chapter 16 Spotsylvania. Part 2. Nearly all that day the two armies constructed breastworks which stood for many years afterward, but neither made any attempt at serious work, although there was incessant firing by the skirmishers and an occasional cannon shot. Harry, whether carrying an order or not, had ample chance to see, and he noted with increasing alarm, the growing masses of the Union Army as they gathered along the Spotsylvania front. Can we beat them? Can we beat them? was the question that he continually asked himself. He wondered, too, where the Winchester Regiment and Dick Mason lay, and where the spy Shepard was. But Shepard was not likely to remain long in one place. Skill and courage such as his would be used to the utmost in a time like this. Doubtless he was somewhere in the Confederate lines, discovering for Grant the relatively small size of the army that opposed him. Nearing dusk and having the time, he followed his custom and sought the Invincibles. Both colonels had recovered considerable strength, and, although one of them could not walk, he would be helped upon his horse whenever the battle began, and would ride into the thick of it. But the faces of St. Clair and Happy Tom glowed, and their wounds apparently were forgotten. "'Lieutenant Arthur St. Clair and Lieutenant Thomas Langdon are gone forever,' said Colonel Talbot. In their places we have Major Arthur St. Clair and Captain Thomas Langdon. All our majors and captains have been killed, and with our reduced numbers these two will fill their places as best they can, and that they can do so most worthily we all know. They received their promotions this afternoon. Harry congratulated both of them with the greatest warmth. They were very young for such rank but in this war the toll of officers was so great that men sometimes became generals when they were but little older. Is it to be tomorrow? asked Colonel Talbot. I think it likely that we'll fight again then, said Harry. And Grant has not yet had enough. He wants a little more of the same, does he? It would appear so, sir. Then I take it without consulting General Lee that he is ready to deal with the Yankees as he dealt with them in the wilderness. I hope so. Good night. Good night they called to him, and Harry returned to the staff. Taylor, the adjunct general, told him and Dalton to lie down and seek a little sleep. Harry was not at all adverse, as he was completely exhausted again after the tremendous excitement of the battle and the long hours of strain and danger, but his nerves were so much on edge that he could not yet sleep. His eyes were red and smarting from the smoke and burned powder, and he felt as if accumulated smoke and dust encased him like a suit of armor. I'd give a hundred dollars for a good long drink, just as long as I like to make it, he groaned. And I mean drink of pure cold water, too. Confederate paper or money, said Dalton. I mean real money, but at the same time, you oughtn't make invidious comparisons. Then the money's mine, and you can pay me whenever you feel like it, which I suppose will be never. There's a spring in the thick woods just back of your quarters. It flows out from under rocks. At a distance of several yards makes a deep pool, and then the overflow of the pool goes on through the forest to the Po. Come on, Harry, we'll luxuriate and then tell the others. Harry found that it was a most glorious spring, indeed clear and cold. He and Dalton drank slowly at first, and then deeply. 
I didn't know I could hold so much, said Dalton. Nor I, said Harry. Let's take another. I'm with you. Let's make it two more. I still follow you. Horace wrote about his old Florian and the other wines which he enjoyed as he and the leading Roman sport sat around the fountain flirting with the girls, said Dalton. But I don't believe any wine ever brewed in Latinium was the equal to this water. I've always had an idea that Horace wasn't as gay as he pretended to be, else he wouldn't have written so much about Chloe and her comrades. I imagine that an old Roman boy would keep pretty quiet about his dancing and singing and not publish it to the public. Well, let him be. He's dead and the Romans are dead and the Americans are doing their best to kill off one another. But let's forget it for a few minutes. That pool is about four feet deep and the water is clear and the bottom is firm ground. Now, do you know what I'm going to do? Yes, and I'm going to do the same. I bet you even that I beat you into the water. Taken. They threw off their clothes rapidly, but the splashes were simultaneous as their bodies struck the water. Although the limits of the pool were narrow, they splashed and paddled there for a while, and it was a long time since they had known such a luxury. Then they walked out, dried themselves, and spread the good news. All night long the pool was filled with the bathers, following one another in turn. The water, taken internally and externally, soothed Harry's nerves. His excitement was gone. The great army with which they were sure to fight on the morrow was not far away, but for a time he was indifferent. The morrow would take care of itself. It was night, and he had permission to go to sleep. Hence he slumbered fifteen minutes later. He slept almost through the night, and when he was awakened shortly before dawn, he found that his strength and elasticity had returned. He and Dalton went down to the spring again, drank many times, and then ate breakfast with the older members of the staff, a breakfast that differed very little from that of the common soldiers. Then a day or two of waiting and watching, and of confused but terrible fighting ensued. The forest were again set on fire by the bursting shells, and they were not able to rescue many of the wounded from the flames. Vast clouds again floated over the whole region, drawing a veil of dusk between the soldiers and the sun. But neither army was willing to attack the other in full force. Grant, commanding all the armies of the east, was moving meanwhile. A powerful cavalry division, he heard, had gotten behind Beauregard, who was to protect Richmond, and was tearing up an important railway line used by the Confederacy. The daring Sheridan, with another great division of cavalry, had gone around Lee's left and was wrecking another railway, and with it the rations and medical supplies so necessary to the Confederates. Grant, recognizing his antagonist's skill and courage, and knowing that to succeed he must destroy the main southern army, resolved to attack again with his whole force. The day had been comparatively quiet, and the Army of Northern Virginia had devoted nearly the whole time to fortifying the earthworks and breastworks of logs. The young aides, as they rode on their missions, could easily see the northern lines through their glasses. Harry's heart sank as he observed their extent. The southern army was sadly reduced in numbers, and Grant could get reinforcement continually. But such is the saving grace of human nature, that even in these moments of suspense, with one terrible battle just over and another about to begin, the soldiers of the blue and gray would speak to one another in friendly fashion in the bushes or across the Po. It was on the banks of this narrow river that Harry at last saw Shepard once more. He happened to be on foot that time, the slope being too densely wooded for his horse, and Shepard hailed him from the other side. "'Good day, Mr. Kenton. Don't fire. I want to talk,' he said, holding up both hands as a sign of peace. "'A curious place for talking,' Harry could not keep from saying. 
so it is but we're not observed here it was almost inevitable while the armies remained face to face that we should meet in time i want to tell you that i've met your cousin richard mason here and his commanding officer colonel winchester oh i know much more about you and your relationships than you think how is dick he has not been hurt, nor has Colonel Winchester. Mr. Mason has received a letter from his home and your home in Pendleton in Kentucky. The outlaws to the eastward were troublesome, but the town is occupied by an efficient Union garrison and is in no danger. His mother and all of his friends and your friends who did not go to the war are in good health. He thought that in my various capacities as ranger, scout, and spy I might meet you, and he asked me, if it so happened, to tell these things to you. I thank you, said Harry very earnestly, and I'm truly sorry, Mr. Shepard, that you and I are on different sides. I suppose it's too late for you to come over to the Union and the true cause. Harry laughed. You know, Mr. Shepard, there are no traitors in this war. I know it. I was merely jesting. He slipped into the underbrush and disappeared. Harry confessed to himself once more that he liked Shepard, but he felt more strongly than ever that it had become a personal duel between them and they would meet yet again in violence. That night he had little to do. It was a typical May night in Virginia, clear and beautiful, with an air that would have been a tonic to the nerves had it not been for the bitter smoke and odors that yet lingered from the battle of the wilderness. Before dawn, the scouts brought in a rumor that there was a heavy movement of Federal troops, although they did not know its meaning. It might portend another flank march by Grant, but a mist that had begun to rise after midnight hid much from them. The mist deepened into a fog, which made it harder for the Southern leaders to learn the meaning of the Northern movement. Just as the dawn was beginning to show a little through the fog, Hancock and Burnside and many more generals led a tremendous attack upon the Southern right center. They had come so silently through the thickets that for once the southern leaders were surprised. The Union veterans, rushing forward in dense columns, stormed and took the breastworks with the bayonet. Many of the southern troops, sound asleep, awoke to find themselves in the enemy's hands. Others, having no time to fire them, fought with clubbed rifles. Harry, dozing, was awakened by the terrific uproar. Even before the dawn had fairly come, the battle was raging on a long front. The center of Lee's army was broken, and the Union troops were pouring into the gap. Grant had already taken many guns and thousands of prisoners, and the bulldog of Shiloh and Vicksburg and Chattanooga was hurrying fresh divisions into the combat to extend and ensure his victory. Through the forest swelled the deep northern cry of triumph. Harry had never before seen the southern army in such danger, and he looked at General Lee, who had now mounted Traveler. The turmoil and confusion in front of them was frightful and indescribable. The Union troops had occupied an entire Confederate salient, and their generals, feeling that the moment was theirs, led them on, reckless of life, and swept everything before them. Harry never took his eyes from Lee. The rising sun shot golden beams through the smoke and disclosed him clearly. His face was calm and his voice did not shake as he issued his orders with rapidity and precision. The lion at bay was never more the lion. A new line of battle was formed and the fugitives formed up with it. Then the southern troops, uttering once more the fierce rebel yell, charged directly upon their enemy and under the eye of the great chief whom they almost worshipped. Now Harry, for the first time, saw his general show excitement. Lee galloped to the head of one of the Virginia regiments, and, ranging his horse beside the colors, snatched off his hat and pointed it at the enemy. It was a picture with, with all the hero worship of youth, he never forgot. It did not even grow dim in his memory. The great leader on horseback, 
his hat in his hand, his eyes fiery, his face flushed, his hand pointing the way to victory or death. It was an occasion, too, when the personal presence of a leader meant everything. Every man knew Lee, and tremendous rolling cheers greeted his arrival, the cheers that could be heard above the thunder of cannon and rifles. It infused new courage into them, and they gathered themselves for the rush upon their victorious foe. Gordon of Georgia, spurring through the smoke, seized Lee's horse by the bridle. He did not mean to have their commander-in-chief sacrificed in a charge. This is no place for you, General Lee, he cried. Go to the rear. Lee did not yet turn, and Gordon shouted, These men are Virginians and Georgians who have never failed. Go back, I entreat you. Then Gordon turned to his troops and cried as he rose on his toes in his stirrups, Men, you will not fail now. Back came the answering shout, No, no, and the whole mass of troops burst into one thunderous echoing cry, Lee to the rear, Lee to the rear, Lee to the rear nor would they move until Lee turned and rode back. Then, led by Gordon, they charged straight upon their foe, who met them with an equal valor. All day long the Battle of Spotsylvania, equal in fierceness and desperation to that of the wilderness, swayed to and fro. To Harry, as he remembered them, they were much alike, charge and defense, defense and charge. Here they gained a little, there they lost a little. Now they were stumbling through sanguinary thickets and then they rushed across little streams that ran red. The firing was rapid and furious to an extraordinary degree. The air rained shells and bullets. Areas of forest between the two armies were mowed down. More than one large tree was cut through entirely by rifle bullets. Other trees here, as in the wilderness, caught fire and flamed high. Midnight put an end to the battle, with neither gaining the victory and both claiming it. Harry had lost another horse, killed under him, and now he walked almost dazed through the terrible field of Spotsylvania, where nearly thirty thousand men had fallen, and nothing had yet been decided. Yet in Harry's heart the fear of the grim and silent Grant was growing. The northern general had fought within a few days two battles, each the equal of Waterloo, and Harry felt sure that he was preparing for a third. The combat of the giants was not over, and with an anxious soul he waited the next dawn. They remained some days longer in the wilderness, or the country adjacent to it, and there was much skirmishing and firing of heavy artillery, but the third great pitched battle did not quite come as soon as Harry expected it. Even Grant, appalled by the slaughter, hesitated and began to maneuver again by the flank to get past Lee. Then the fighting between the skirmishers and the heavy detached parties became continuous. During the days that immediately followed, Harry was much with Sherburne. The brave colonel was one of Stuart's most trusted officers. Despite the forests and thickets, there was much work for the cavalry to do, while the two armies circled and circled, each seeking to get advantage of the other. Sheridan, they heard, was trying to curve about with his horsemen and reach Richmond, and Stuart, with his cavalry, including Sherburne's, was sent to intercept him, Harry riding by Sherburne's side. It was near the close of May, but the air was cool and pleasant, a delight to breathe after the awful wilderness. Stuart, despite his small numbers, was in his gayest spirits, and when he overtook the enemy at a little place called Yellow Tavern, he attacked with all his customary fire and vigor. In the height of the charge, Harry saw him sink suddenly from his horse, shot through the body. 
He died not long afterward, and the greatest and most brilliant horseman of the South passed away to join Jackson and so many who had gone before. Harry was one of the little group who carried the news to Lee, and he saw how deeply the great leader was affected. So many of his great generals had fallen, and he was like the head of a family, bereft. Nevertheless, the lion, still at bay, was great and terrible to strike. It was barely two weeks after Spotsylvania when Lee took up a strong position at Cold Harbor, and Grant, confident in his numbers and powerful artillery, attacked straight away at dawn. Harry was in front during that half hour, the most terrible ever seen on the American continent, when northern brigade after brigade charged a certain death. Lee's men, behind their earthworks, swept the field with a fire in which nothing could live. The charging columns fairly melted away before them, and when the half hour was over, more than twelve thousand men in blue lay upon the red field. Grant himself was appalled, and the North, which had begun to anticipate a quick and victorious end of the war, concealed its disappointment as best it could, and prepared for another campaign. Grant and Lee, facing each other, went into trenches along the lines of Cold Harbor, and the hopes of the young Southern soldiers after the victory there rose anew. But Harry was not too sanguine, although he kept his thoughts to himself. The officers of the Invincibles had recovered from their wounds, and Colonel Leonidas Talbot and Lieutenant Colonel Hector St. Hilaire, sitting in a trench, resumed their game of chess. Colonel Talbot took a pawn, the first man captured by either since early spring. That was quite a victory, he said. Not important. Not important, Leonidas. And why not, Hector? Because you left the way to your king easier. I shall promptly move along that road. As Grant moved through the wilderness, don't depreciate Grant, Leonidas. He never stops pounding. We fought two great battles with him in the wilderness and a third at Cold Harbor, and he's still out there facing us. Can't you see the Yankees with your glasses, Harry? Yes, sir, quite clearly. They're about to fire a shot from a big gun in a wood. There it goes. The deep note of the cannon came to them, passed on, and then rolled back in echoes like a threat. End of chapter 16, part 2. Recording by Michael Packard of Western Colorado. End of the Shades of the Wilderness by Joseph A. Altscheller.